Welcome to Western Hills Podcast. Let's continue our series on how to find joy. And I want to appreciate all of those of you that reach out to me and just tell me how much this has meant to you. And you've shared with me something that you're struggling with. And I'm so honored when you do that. And so today I've had you on my heart as I've prepared. I've had you on my mind as I've prepared. And I believe what God has for us today is a, is a powerful message if we'll let it. Because today we're going to talk about the, what I believe to be the greatest joy stealer that gets in our way. Some of you have lost joy because of a situation. A medical diagnosis came through. A job was lost. And in the process of this situation or this event, your joy was robbed. Some of your joy was taken by a person. There was a betrayal. There was a disappointment. There was broken relationship, whatever it is. And you wrestle with not having joy. But today I need to talk about the number one thing because that's where... Our author, Paul, the one that wrote this letter, takes us. And as we approach this, what I need you to remember is that Paul is not writing this letter to this church from the Riviera. He's not sitting poolside. He's not comfortable. He's writing from a prison. And yet he's going to write and address the thing that challenges us the most. And so today, this is why I'm glad that we have crew worship. Because it takes the kids out of the room. Because I need to talk about a four-letter word. Okay, There's a four-letter word that robs your joy. Are you ready for it? Here's the four-letter word. This is the one that gets in the way of our joy more often than anything else. And this is what Paul's going to talk to us about today. And the, and the problem with self is that as we start becoming more and more consumed with self, we have a phrase for that, right? We call it being self-centered. Now, self-centered is one of those wonderful dynamics, isn't it? Because I guarantee you, you can always spot somebody else that's self-centered, right? You've got your list, Okay. No nudging the person next to you, okay? This is, you, you've got your list. It's easy to see when somebody else is self-centered, but it is really hard to see self-centered in the mirror, isn't it? it it's hard to look back because, because self-centered comes with a great self-delusion. And we live in a culture, and we're going to talk more about this, we live in a culture that baits us towards being self-centered, Right? We live in a culture that calls us in many ways to be self-centered. Because we're most impressed with the person that's successful and on their own. And they take care of business all, all on their self. And we look at that and we see them being self-centered. And then here's what's really funny. Because there's a lie that I believe Satan has sold us about this. And here, here's the lie. Satan has set the lie up to be the more self-centered you are, the more you should be worried about yourself taking care of self, and yet what happens is when you fall for the lie, the more consumed with self you become, the more self-destructive you become. Self-centered equals self-destruction. And so when you're only concerned about your pain and your feelings, what do you do? You medicate it away. And that leads to an addiction. 
When you're only concerned about your pleasure and your sexual fulfillment, what, what happens? You start experiencing sex outside the bounds of marriage, outside of God's, God's design. Self-destructive. When you become consumed with only your legacy and your impact and your fears being forgotten, what happens? People forget you faster because you don't matter to them. The lie of becoming self-centered is self-destruction. And Paul is going to invite us into experience joy instead of self-destruction. But he's going to flip the script on us. And here's what I want us to dig into in in chapter 2 of this letter that Paul wrote from a prison to a church. And so here he is writing to a church, and it wouldn't be a church unlike this one. It's a church full of real people with real problems and real stuff going on, and yet Paul's going to call them to live out something. So here's what he says. So if you want to follow along, I'm going to start in chapter 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from my love... Any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, then verse 2, and if you're circling in your Bible, I want you to circle this. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Okay, you see what Paul's saying? I want you to complete my joy. Paul's saying, you, and so he's writing from prison. Even in prison, Paul's saying, I can be joyful. And you play a part of that. If you will do something for me on my behalf, you can complete my joy by how? By being of one mind. By being unified. By, and the simple way to say it is by getting along. If you would come and get along, that would complete my joy. See, Paul, Paul's like a parent over this church. Paul loves them like a father would love this church. And if you have children, you know that one of the greatest joys as a parent is seeing when your kids love each other, right? When your kids get along, because it happens so rarely, right? You know, when the screaming stops and there's no noise and there's no fighting, suddenly you get a little nervous and you look around What's wrong? Who's hurt? And you notice, and they're getting along and they're loving each other and they're caring for each other. And suddenly, as a parent, you're like, this is what it should be. And it brings you great joy. Paul looks at this church with the eyes of a father, with the eyes of a pastor. And he says, What I want you to do is I want you to get along. And he has to say this because they're not getting along. It's a real church with a real problem. If you think all the churches that are talked about in the Bible are perfect, you've not read your Bible. You know, somebody says, I want to be a biblical church. Well, then you've got to be a grumbling and complaining church because that's what Paul wrote to. Because look, Paul, Paul has to say a line that should scare us to death. Okay, I'm going to show you one of the hardest verses in the entire New Testament to follow. Okay? Is everybody ready for this? You ready? Because if, if this one doesn't make you worry about your faith, you're not paying attention. Okay? It's found in Philippians chapter 4. Look at this. I'm sorry. Nope. It's verse 14. Chapter 2, verse 14. 
Sorry. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, if you grew up in the Church of Christ, Church of Christ, we have a favorite verse. It's Acts 2.38. It's when Peter is preaching right at the beginning of the church and a crowd says, what must we do to be saved? And he says, repent and be baptized. Aren't you glad Peter didn't say, do all things without grumbling or disputing? Because we wouldn't have a chance, would we? In fact, when he says, repent and be baptized, I'm sure somebody in the crowd said, but I don't like to get wet. Because we are natural complainers, right? Can you imagine practicing this verse for a week? Can you imagine practicing it for a day? No complaints, no grumbles for a day. If you live alone, you got a chance. Okay? But there's a good chance you won't make it off this campus without that. This is what Paul has to tell them. Because here's what Paul knows. And I want you to write this down. Joy is a relational challenge. Joy is a relational challenge. How we get along with each other, how we relate to each other, how we we interact with each other will always play a role into our joy. Remember, ourself, it keeps wanting to get in the way. It keeps wanting all the attention. And so Paul's having to tell this church, a real church with real problems is saying, be careful because joy is Always going to be challenged by relationships. Not that you can, that you get rid of relationships, but how you handle your relationships. And Paul says this because there is a fight going on in this church. There's two women that are at odds with each other. Let me show you that to you. Now, this is in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 2 says this. It says, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Those are the women, Yodia and Syntyche. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together, with Clem and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, just picture yourself for a second. Now, we don't know why these women are fighting. I don't know if they showed up both with the same dish at the potluck the same day and they both claimed it was their recipe. We don't know if it's something far more serious. Maybe they both wanted to lead a ministry and it's a power struggle between them on who's going to get to run a certain ministry. There may be something going on behind the scenes. They may be somehow family connected and there's a family squabble that's going on and now it's spilled over into the church. But what seems to be happening is that these two ladies are at odds with each other and people are starting to line up behind them. Because here's what Paul knows. Paul knows that self-centeredness will kill the church. And it's killing this church. And some of you have seen that happen in churches before. When two people went crossways and they couldn't get along in the name of Jesus. And it started to split a church. And it left scars, and they lasted a lifetime. Well, Paul is calling Yodi and Syneke, and can you imagine the level 
that they had to be fighting it to be this. So they go to church one day, and I'm sure they sat on, you know, Yodi sat on her side, and Sinegi sat on her side, and they're just fuming, and they're trying to figure out who they're going to tell and get on their side because they're going to gripe and complain about it. And somebody gets up and says, we have a letter from Paul. Oh, we like Paul. We're going to listen to Paul. And about chapter 4, their names get named in church for all the reasons that you don't want named. Can you imagine the pin that you could have heard drop at that moment? But you notice what Paul doesn't do? Paul doesn't take sides. Paul never says which one of these ladies is right. Because let me tell you what, being right is not important to Paul. The relationship is important to Paul. And you're going to come across moments in your life where you get to make a choice. You can be right or you can have the relationship, but you don't get both. And you're going to have to weigh that in that moment. Because remember, the self-centered side is always going to speak up. It's going to raise its hand. It's going to say this phrase, but I'm right. And the more you listen to that, but I'm right, the more you're going to close the door on relationships. And this is important because it kills a church and it kills our witness as people of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is saying our joy will always be challenged by relationships. Make my joy complete, he says, and love one another. Get along in his relationships. And he goes on to build on this. Philippians chapter 2 verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Now, if we practiced that verse, those two verses... It says, look not only to your own interest, but look to the interest of others. If we practice that, I'm telling you the divorce rate would plummet. Churches would not split. Race reconciliation in our country would be complete and we'd be healed. If we could actually get our minds around what Paul is asking us to do, look at this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Look, look, each of you, look not only to your own interest. See, culture tells us to look to our own interest. We have a phrase, I'm looking out for number one. Have you ever doubted who number one is in that statement? You notice the phrase doesn't go, looking out for number one, P.S., that's you. Looking out for number one, that's what we're trained by our culture to do. And Paul says, you look out for the interests of others. And that has power to it. Imagine the power of that. Now, you may not want to do that yourself, but you would love to live in a world where everybody around you did that, wouldn't you? Right? Who wouldn't want to live in that? 
You'd love to be in a marriage with the other person. It was all about, you know, they were just surrounded up by you. You know, they just wanted to serve you. Again, I've never had anybody in my office doing marital counseling because the two people are trying to outserve each other. Never happened. And so here's what Paul is saying. Let's read the next verse, if you would. Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have this mind. What's mind? This mind of humility among yourselves. Now, here's what you need to know. Humility is not natural. Okay? It's not natural. It's not like, well, some people are born with it, and some people aren't born with it. It's not like a skill. It's not like a giftedness. What it is, is humility is supernatural, and it comes from those who follow Jesus. His Spirit makes it possible to actually do the impossible, which is to put somebody else's priorities in front of your own. So here's what I want you to write down. Humility is an intentional choice. You choose to be intentional. Not by your own power. Not because you're going to grit it up and just be more humble. But because you have the spirit of the living God in you. And that makes it possible for you to do what seems impossible. And that's to put somebody else's priorities, somebody else's concerns above you. Now, let me ask you this. Who wouldn't want to be a part of a church like that? Where everybody was sold out to this idea that I'm going to put your needs in front of my own. Think about that word church. Now, if you're out in the marketplace, in your office area, wherever that is, when you say or hear the word church, it conjures up all kinds of images. I'm going to make a guess, though, that for most of us and most of the people that you bump into out in the world, most of the people that you cross paths with during your week, church, the first word that they hear, that they put in their mind, is not the word joy. And yet here's Paul writing a whole letter that says, your church could be associated with joy when you put others' priorities first. I love this because two weeks ago, when a mobile home caught fire in the Bird Creek Mobile Home Park, as you heard about last week, they called here and said, is there anything you can do to help? If there's anything that I want this church to be known for, it's not the preaching. It's not the building. It's not any of our programs, I would love for us to be known in the community. If you call, they serve. If you reach out, they do what they can because they've got a mindset outside of these walls. That's going to make the difference in our witness. So humility is an intentional mindset. And here's the last part. Paul gives us the ultimate example of where this comes from. So Philippians chapter 2 verse 6 and 8 says this. Who, 
He's talking about Jesus. Remember, had that mindset of Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being formed in human form, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God's how exalted and bestowed him on the name that is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see the transition? Jesus, Paul calls on Jesus. It says Jesus was in the very form, if you're reading the NIV, it says the very nature. Jesus was God. And yet he doesn't see that as something he should leverage for his own good. He doesn't see that as something he should grab a hold of and claim for his own advantage. And yet he releases that and begins this humbling descent from God in the heavens to a baby born to peasants in a manger wrapped up in flesh, walking along the ground and the dust, and living a life not as a king, not as a high exalted one, not as one with all the authority of heaven and earth in his command, but just as a man. And a would-be preacher, and traveled around, and as he shared his message, the hostile forces came against him to the point where he was treated like a slave, beaten and bruised, and not just treated like a slave, but even condemned to death. And Paul would say, not just any kind of death, the death on a cross, the most humiliating, shameful death you could possibly imagine. And Paul says, that's what Jesus did. And so here's what Paul offers up, and here's what I want you to write down. Jesus is our counter-cultural model. Jesus gives us an entirely different way than what culture is going to tell us. Culture says, look out for number one. Culture says, more of self. And Jesus totally reverses that. And Paul says, this is how you find joy. You live this way. You live out this life where others come first. And you humble yourself. And then God does something with that. And Jesus is trusting God every step of the way. And so Jesus' invitation, Paul's invitation, is to imitate exactly what Jesus did. And again, our self-centeredness wants to fight against that because we still feel the need to look out for number one. Because if we do that, we'll be taken advantage of. You know, somebody may get away with something. And yet Paul says... That's the trust part. That's the part where you trust your heavenly Father and the Son Jesus that modeled this for you. And if you want to live this way, self-centered jumps in and says, but we're right. And I have rights. And Paul still says, you didn't have any more rights than the one that could claim to be equal with God and yet didn't leverage that right. To his advantage. And begin this emptying 
self-emptying out on our behalf. And what Jesus did is he lived with a purpose. And it's very clear all through his ministry, and this is why Paul says to look at him, and this is why Paul can be focused at this moment, because they lived with a purpose. And if your purpose is self, this, this is... This will change you. If your purpose is self and you're the center of your own universe, you will not have joy. Again, self-centeredness leads to self-destruction. But if there's a purpose that you find outside of yourself, there's a joy that's going to come with that. Because your life needs to be about something bigger than you. I'm sorry, but you're just not that big a deal. And the last thing that you want is to get to the end of your life, having lived it all for you, and then learn that lesson. And so Jesus is inviting you to something, an adventure so much more grand. And if you will live life outside yourself, there's going to be joy to be found there. Maybe you're familiar with the book, Man's Search for Meaning. It's by Viktor Frankl. It's one of the most significant books in America it's a, by a German um, psychologist, but it's had great impact in America. It's based on the 20th century. And Viktor Frankl was captured and placed into some of the camps, the internment camps and concentration camps of Germany in World War II. And as he also was a psychologist, he observed how different people dealt with the harsh conditions of being in the camp. And what Viktor Frankl observed was those that were going to be adaptive and the most successful at surviving were those that could interpret their suffering, could interpret their pain through a sense of purpose. And the ones that had a God to rely on and had a faith in in God above that could say, there's some meaning here, even if they couldn't see it right in the moment, but they could know that there's a purpose to what God was doing in them, through them, and with them. They're the ones that were going to be adapted to it. They're the ones that were going to be able to, in some of the worst situations you could possibly imagine, actually have joy. So it all came down to finding the meaning. And Victor is simply agreeing with Paul. And Paul simply following Jesus. Says if you live for self, no joy. But if you live for others into a God-called mission to serve somehow, that may be in your family. That it may be in your marriage. That may be for your kids. That may be for your parents. That may be something particular in your workspace. That, that may be a ministry that you've had on your heart and you've just thought, I'm not sure, I'm not sure, I'm not sure. And it's time to get off the dime and go for it. It's time to, to step in there because God's been calling and shaping you for this. And there's going to be a joy and a passion and a power there that you can experience because suddenly it's not about you, but he's calling you to something greater. And I can say this with great confidence because, again, Jesus is the countercultural model. And Paul holds him up, and Jesus found joy in his mission 
Because his purpose was you. And even though Jesus endured the suffering of the cross, his purpose was you. And having relationship with you. And not letting you be out of reach of God. If you want to write down this verse, I'm going to encourage you to do that. But I'm going to end here. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 says this. Hebrews 12 2. If you don't have it in front of you, just, just listen to it. This is talking about Jesus. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Listen to this phrase. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Who for the joy set before him. What's the joy? You. His chance to redeem you was a joy set before him. And because of that, that joy, he was able to endure the cross. Because of that joy, he was able to endure this heinous death, not only physically painful, but a separation from God. Because of you. Something outside of him, and that's the same invitation that you have, something outside this is why when in my earlier days and I got to take kids in youth ministry on mission trips, we would go to some of the hardest places and do some of the toughest work. Some of it was just physical labor. And it was hot. It was sweaty and it was dirty. And they were ecstatic because it was something bigger than themselves. Sometimes it would be to go and work with uh, at-risk kids. And it was hard emotionally. And it was difficult because we didn't always know the right thing to do. And the hours were long. And they ate it up and they went back year after year. Or like this youth group has gone to Camp Barnabas. And for one week, 24 hours a day, paired up with a special needs adult. A special needs camper. High need. And these kids work alongside them. And it's difficult and it's awkward and it's uncomfortable and they come back and say I'd go back in a heartbeat because there's joy there when you live outside yourself so here's the invitation for this week as you go through your week without grumbling or complaining who will you serve as you go through this week who will you serve who who will you reach out to And do something on their behalf. Because if you get anything else, here's what you understand. And here's the whole message. Joy increases when self decreases. You want to increase your joy, decrease yourself. Let me pray for us. Father, I realize that This is easier to say than it is to live out. But for all those hearing this message that are wrestling with joy, I pray that you would give us insight into ourselves. You would be the perfect mirror that reveals to us what we so desperately try to hide from ourselves, Father. Would you reveal to each of us our own self-centered world? Would you expose that to us? 
And Father, I, I don't ask that because I think that's easy. I ask it because we need it. And in that process, would you show us a mission and a passion outside of ourselves? And would you help us discover joy there? Father, I'm so grateful that when it came to Jesus and the cross, that instead of putting himself at the center of the world where he and he alone rightly deserves to be, they said, I'm going to do this on behalf of someone else. And I'm grateful that my name was on his mind. So, Father, I pray. Would you help us to be a church that exudes joy because we're serving one another? Would you help us to have marriages that reflect joy because it's spouses serving one another? Families that exude joy because we're serving one another. Home groups that exude joy because we're serving one another. And would you let us have a chance to be known in this community as a church that serves this city. Father, would you let your spirit do what is supernatural here. I ask all this in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. If there's anything that we can be praying with you about, we take prayer real seriously here. If we can share with you baptism, and if you're like, I I don't even know how to begin to access that kind of joy in my life, well, then it begins by making Jesus Lord And we'd love to talk to you about that and baptize you in the name of Jesus. Is there any way we can bless you? We'd love to. The shepherd's going to be down here. I'm going to be standing down here. We'd love to visit you while we sing these next songs. Thank you for listening to this Western Hills podcast. Please visit our website, westernhillsonline.org, to find out more about us.